You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today in studio, I have with me David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. Hi, David. Welcome. Hi, Dr. Blank. I'm very glad to be here. Glad to have you, because this is a topic that we haven't talked about in a good long while. And one of the topics that was brought up in the news yesterday, let's be really clear, we have not seen this person, we are not um, treating this person, we have never evaluated this person, we are not diagnosing this person, but this has brought to mind some important things that we need to talk about. So today we're going to talk about sex addiction. And it is a very important topic for us to begin talking about. And it's interesting because it is actually something that that we've been coming to terms with more at the center and that we've had more people dealing with and actually beginning to um, look more into what current research is around it because so much of the research was done in the early 80s and early 90s and then it has become just part of the... the, um, conversation but it's drifted out and now it's back again because the news has made it a big huge topic so the um, example of someone who's getting into trouble with sexual behavior that is inappropriate would certainly be uh, Mr. Anthony Weiner and uh, unfortunately that was brought up in the news and raised our awareness that this probably is really a topic that we need to talk about It seems very um, comical in some ways, I'm sure, to some people. It seems very tragic and embarrassing in other ways to other people. The idea that there could be someone who has a sexual addiction, a behavioral addiction that revolves around sex, seems to be, for many people in the lay public at least, a far-fetched idea. This is not something that a lot of people are buying into. They think somebody's doing bad behavior and got caught, and so now they're looking for an excuse so that they will not get arrested or sent to jail or their spouse won't leave them. And while that may be true for some, I think that it is really important to recognize the idea that that there are sexual addictions and that these are very real and often accompany other kinds of addictions. And I, that's where I really like the ASAM, the American Society of Addiction Medicine definition of addiction, uh, talking about uh, the idea that it's a brain disease, that it involves certain neural pathways, memory pathways, reward and learning pathways, and that it's not a specific drug or a specific behavior, but it is a brain disease. And that's where we differ with DSM-5, which continues to separate out addiction into substance use disorder associated with tobacco or substance use disorder associated with compulsive gambling. But it is not giving us a unified theory, if you will, about addiction and the idea that behavioral addictions are very powerful and often very much a part of many people who, many people's lives who suffer with the disease of addiction. Um, uh, I think that's really very true, and, and this 
yesterday listening to the various news stories talk about this, everybody who brought it up um, would mention sexual addiction, but they were real clear to back up and say it's not actually recognized in the psychiatric community as an addiction, and, and they would refer to it as hypersexuality or as an obsessive-compulsive disorder that's manifesting in sexual behaviors. Um, those of us who have been working in the addiction field and have been working with um, people dealing with with chronic alcoholism and have seen the patterns that alcoholics get into or the patterns that opiate addicts get into or the patterns that compulsive gamblers will experience mm-hmm. when when we sit down and we're talking with somebody who has sexual addiction there's not a question as to what we are talking to um, um, that the the, the criteria of of addiction is is very easily met tolerance withdrawal um um, continued use despite serious consequences and that's what really made this one such a shocker for the news for for mm-hmm. for um mr weiner to be having this third uh, incident of the basically the exact same thing and and the public really being shocked at um why would he do this exact same thing again text texting or tweeting out um, inappropriate images when he's so well known and so famous and it has cost him so much that it cost him his senate race it cost him his mayoral race and now while his wife is moving up in in, um, in her career it's once again throwing a light on, on that whole situation and yet he continues to still do it in spite of very significant consequences and this being played out in the, a very public way for many of our patients that struggle with this, it, there is enough guilt and shame just in revealing this to their spouse or to their therapist or other people in group, let alone the difficulty in terms of having something like this exposed so very publicly. And that creates such a lot of difficulty for the family members. And when you think children that are involved and now know about this or will know about it at some point in their life. That's a very difficult thing to wrap your head around, and it's also one of the things that's so important is with this addiction, just like other addictions, there is a lot of suffering that goes on within the family and a lot of healing that has to take place. When I was um, reviewing some information for this show today, I was very much struck by Patrick Carnes, who's one of the pioneers in this field. Um, Dr. Carnes was giving a lecture that I was reviewing and talking about there's enough shame and guilt associated with being an alcoholic or being addicted to drugs but the level of shame and guilt that is associated with having a sexual addiction is just so much more intense. And the prejudice is very strong and cuts across all, all walks of life in terms of people who can accept this is a disease, but they really struggle with accepting that this kind of compulsive sexual behavior can also be part of a disease process. Mm-hmm. I actually think that that it's it's 
better to pull back when talking about this subject and just actually go back to what is the basic criteria for addiction and look at it with the application of sexual behaviors as opposed to alcohol or drug behaviors. And and once you start doing that, you see the exact same thing. You see the... Um, the <coughs> the subtle guilt and the desire to stop and the inability to control it and you see the powerlessness um, um, and when when the patient really starts talking about it or the family members start talking about it and they start actually saying what the consequences are um, it, it becomes very very clear because because I think with this addiction apart from others when the consequences become known mm-hmm. the 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 light because the original book on this was called out of the shadows and it was uh, dr carnes really had focused on bringing this into the light and being able to talk about it but when when a consequence happens with this particular addiction the light is thrown on it the whole world discovers um the person's either <laughs> in the news or in the courtroom or something but no longer is it a family secret and kids aren't going to be able to go to school without other kids knowing about it and making fun of them and, and saying your daddy did such and such or whatever you know it's it becomes a, a public shame really really quickly and for the the addict suffering it's it's um really the first time that really hits home their their ability to depersonalize and separate from that feeling when they're in the midst of this addiction is is um an impenetrable wall impenetrable wall until that actually happens i remember um one of the very first patients that i treated and of course details are going to be changed um to pr- protect confidentiality but i remember this person it, it finally came to light for them when they had been using the telephone chat lines, the sex lines, back in the late 80s, early 90s. And he had been using these so frequently and to such a degree that in one month, and again, this is not 2016 dollars, this is or 1989-1990 dollars that this person had spent in one month $40,000 and his house was being repossessed his credit cards had all been maxed out he lost his job of course his wife found out and this was one month. That's that's the level of compulsion. This isn't someone who's having an affair and suddenly that becomes known and now wife is mad and attorney says go get treatment for sex addiction and now your wife won't have grounds for um, being mad at you. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a degree and a level of intensity of involvement with these behaviors that is well beyond what anyone would think is normal. Those are, those are the kind of consequences that you think of with somebody who's a compulsive gambler, mm-hmm. that they'll have those kind of dollars. With with drug addiction, you might hear somebody who's going through $1,000 at a time, even in today's dollars, you're, that it's, it's, you're hearing those kind of numbers. But when it comes to the gambling and when it comes to these compulsive sexual mm-hmm. things, that you'll hear those kind of numbers. They'll, they'll have those numbers with, as you said in the old days, the, the, um, the pay lines, um, but now with internet chat rooms and with um, um, still use of prostitutes Prost. and, and mm-hmm. um, other behaviors, um, that they'll end up 
going through bank accounts and getting their whole financial life in jeopardy really, really quickly. And, and in a very serious way. Often this is revealed at work, and this is another one of the difficulties if someone is watching porn online. If, if you don't know now, then let me be the first to tell you that your employer has a right <laughs> to look at everything you've looked at on the Internet, to follow every one of your threads, every site you visited. They can look at your phone if it's a company phone, and they have the right to do this. And this is one of the ways that this sometimes is revealed again, in a very dramatic and embarrassing way that someone's looking at porn at home or uh, sending out tweets and texts and pictures uh, using company phones that then become discovered and become part of this huge blow-up and huge consequences that become very public very fast. Well, and, and what I'm reminded of is that this is a, uh, a progressive disease. So it's a disease that starts out mild and gets much, much worse, just like alcohol and alcoholism or one of the other drugs. And so in that scenario, the person may initially have been um, noticing a, a pretty face on, on the Internet, and that was fine. And everybody came over and looked at it and said, oh, it's she pretty, and there was no, no consequence, no big deal. But then there's something in his brain that says – let's go back and see what else I can find mm -hmm. and it begins to escalate to more revealing um, pornography and then to more explicit um, activities and the person's brain is accommodating it the entire time um, so when it becomes a public incident it's at a really shocking level right. the person th that gets shocked is suddenly doing things that no one would imagine Exactly. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the neurobiology and how this all works and some other examples and part of the criteria of sexual addiction. Please stay tuned. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend 
but needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. I have with me David Donaldson, the CEO from the Atlanta Healing Center. Today we're talking about a touchy subject, sexual addiction. Lots of people have lots of opinions on this, but I hope that we can educate you a little bit in terms of understanding this particular disorder and understanding how it and why we think it fits in with the other addictive diseases. And certainly the American Society of Addiction Medicine recognizes this as being one of the um, addictive disorders. So if we go back to the brain, which of course is where the disease of addiction lies, deep, deep in our brain in the survival part of our brain, there are two areas, the ventral tegmental area and the nucleus accumbens. These two centers are our pleasure centers. They release dopamine, which is a powerfully reinforcing chemical that helps us be rewarded for doing things we need to do to take care of ourselves and to continue the species. So there are a couple of natural things that release dopamine for everybody, whether you've got the disease of addiction or not. When we think about eating, in particular sugar, sugar is one of the foods that we are genetically programmed to look for, and when we find it and consume it, we get a big jolt of dopamine, and that is highly, highly rewarding. Now, back in the olden days, when we used to have to be running through the forest chasing down our supper, our brains are actually wired to look for ripe fruit or honey or other sweet kinds uh, sources of sugar. And because of that, we are able to grab that ripe banana or that piece of sugar cane as we're running through the woods and have some instant access to sugar so that our energy stores are able to continue and we can hunt down our dinner. Well, that's all fine and good until we get to modern day when sugar is added to just about everything. And if you don't believe me, start looking at the ingredient sections of many of the foods that you consume. So sugar is one of those things that we are naturally rewarded for consuming. Um, We also get a release of dopamine whenever we have sex. That feeling of closeness, intimacy, and actually the feeling of an orgasm is modulated and that reward comes from dopamine. 
So that is a natural behavior because we need to be able to continue the species. So sex is one of the things that is rewarded by dopamine in our brain. We know that gambling also releases dopamine. We know that the drugs out of the thousands and thousands and thousands of of chemicals in this world of ours, only about 30 of them are actually going to release dopamine from these two centers in your brain. So these are the substances that we know of as being addictive, whether that's cocaine, whether that's opium, whether that's alcohol or tobacco, marijuana. These things release dopamine, and sex is one of those things. So from the time we first figured that out, uh, it is a very motivating thing for us to have this dopamine released. If you are genetically vulnerable, you are going to experience more intense dopamine, and you're not going to get that second messenger that says, stop, you've had enough. So a little is good and more is better. People who don't have the disease of addiction, that dopamine gets shut down after you've had enough to eat, you've had enough sex, drugs, rock and roll, then dopamine shuts down and it ceases to be as pleasurable at least for some period of time, hours to days, and then you'll get dopamine again. So we're used to having this exposure to dopamine. If you have someone that has the disease of addiction and sex becomes part of their addictive behaviors, this is a very powerfully rewarding activity and can generate this compulsive continued use in spite of consequences, just like we've seen. Again, not diagnosing, but would be consistent with uh, Mr. Weiner's behavior and sexual addiction. Um, and, and part of what I think is so interesting is, is when you always talk about this, you're talking about dopamine in this specific center of the brain. Right. That this is the part of the brain that is geared towards laying down hard-wired hard mm-hmm. memories related to how to avoid the ex- extreme pain and how to repeat the highly pleasurable things. Right. And so when we're talking about sex, uh, it's laying down memories towards anything that's going to connect connect it back to that situation which the the industry out there that's living off of sexual addiction feeds on you know mm-hmm. it's it's triple x in flashing lights that are, are blinking mm-hmm. is feeding on that part of the brain that says oh i need to remember to go there um um the the clothes or the lack of clothes and the way it's all done is designed specifically to hit that person's brain and go right there um, to to keep this addiction thriving. I I remember reading um, um, one study about alcoholism in particular, whereas if that part of the population that actually has that compulsion to keep drinking Mm -hmm. were to stop drinking, most actually stop and not just try some AA for a while, but were to stop much of the alcohol industry would would fail that that because they they really depend on addiction whether it's in alcoholism or 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 the sex industry mm-hmm. to keep them going right it's the 80 20 rule um 20% of the population consume 80% of the alcohol 
Um, so, so <laughs> at least they're not blaming the one percenters exactly, like the rest exactly. of the other. <laughs> Like the rest of, um, of the world. But this idea that, um, again, sex is one of those normal behaviors that is encouraged. It's part of an intimate relationship. It's part of feeling good. But anything that gets linked together, and this is where we have our next problem in treating people with sexual addiction, anything that gets linked together with something that releases dopamine, now becomes a trigger for that. So um, you see a magazine in a store that's wrapped up in brown paper, that becomes a trigger for your mind to think about, that's pornography, I want that. So there's the triggers, but then there's also the enhancements. Many times you'll see people that smoke cigarettes when they drink. I've treated a number of people that only smoke tobacco when they drink alcohol. But they can't stop drinking alcohol until you get them to stop smoking too because those two things are linked and that the added increased level of dopamine that you get from each one of those makes both of them together so intriguing. When you mix sex and drugs and that interchange of I'm using sex, or excuse me, I'm using drugs, I'm intoxicated, now I'm having a sexual experience, now we have this very difficult interplay between treating that person for their addiction to drugs and it being triggered all the time for them when they have just normal sexual feelings. So it's, it becomes a very complicated series, as you mentioned, with the memory and how to get the reward and how to avoid the pain. All of these things get linked together, creating a very difficult playing field. And what we find in particular with sexual addiction that gets linked tends to be um, cocaine or crystal meth, the the amphetamine amphetamine type um, substances. Alcohol initially in the beginning because it, it creates situations where people are able to have that situation happen. Um, but alcohol inhibited. alcohol tends to kill that ability in over time. <laughs> over time. Whereas with the crystal meth and the and the cocaine, it's getting so fused. Um, that for many of these people that are trying to get into recovery and trying to put together a recovering life, um, the big tr- relapse factor for the crystal meth or the cocaine is the the very normal human reaction of feeling um, horny, mm-hmm. <laughs> feeling lonely, feeling horniness, feeling like they really want to connect with somebody, even to just go on a on a dinner date will trigger thoughts of I need cocaine. Right. So helping them. Um, first, recognize that right. and normalizing that that is just what happens when, when sex addiction and cocaine addiction have been fused. And it's going to take some some significant healing and significant work to get to a point where just being able to, to um, talk with somebody um, in a dating type of situation becomes safe again. Right. And that that is very difficult. And one of the, the difficulties that we'll talk about in a little while is how do you define abstinence around sexual behavior? Because it's expected as part of a normal, intimate relationship. And so how does a person in recovery from a sexual addiction 
find the ability to have normal intimacy without getting triggered for the addictive behaviors or getting triggered for the use of other drugs. This is a, it's a really big problem. And the idea that all of these things can become fused, um, one of the things that we have to warn our patients about in the beginning of any recovery from any addiction is that your brain wants dopamine. It's used to it, it likes it, it wants it, and because of that, it's going to look for a way to get it. So, yes, we may have stopped your drugs, but now we see people begin to exercise addictively or eat a lot of sugar or gamble or get involved with sex. So it's like those whack-a-mole games. Mm -hmm. Uh, You get one down and another's coming up because, again, the problem isn't the drug. The problem's your brain. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and I have David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center with me today. We're talking about sexual addiction. And one of the things that I think we need to clarify for all of our listeners is though we've been using the male pronoun, 
This is definitely an addiction that we see in women as well as men. It's probably more prominent in men in terms of who gets caught, but I'm not sure that it's necessarily more prominent in terms of the behaviors. So um, that's one of the things that I thought was really important. And I thought we should talk about the different types of sexual addiction. What are some of the different behaviors that we might consider um, someone would become addicted to or have um, compulsive use of those behaviors? Um, Part of what we were talking about at the end of the last segment was that dopamine reaction. And, and part of what you mentioned is that for the addict, they don't have that shutoff valve, that they start to get a little bit of dopamine and then they want some more dopamine and they keep getting more and more and more. And one is not enough and one is too many and a thousand is not enough because they keep on going for more and more and more. Non-addicts have a chemical messenger that gives them a shutoff valve. Mm-hmm. And what I've noticed in working with family members and working with patients is that shutoff valve tends to include the word yuck. It's like, <laughs> oh, I'm beginning to feel yucky. Oh, I've had too much. I need to take a break. My stomach feels yucky. And and I think of that because as we talk about the, the list that we're about to read, people who don't have this disease will hear a lot of these things and their brain is going to say yuck. They're going to have that re- reaction because mm-hmm. their brain is saying, yeah, no, I'm yeah. not going to go there. Um, but it starts out real often because it's an escalating disease, initially starting out with, with masturbation, right. becoming more compulsive, becoming um, maybe more ritualized um, or, or in, in places it shouldn't be happening. Right. And, and more extreme, even to the level that people physically hurt themselves. I know sometimes this is called self-abuse. We're talking about when people literally will um, have so much friction or masturbate for so long that they have sores, lesions, loss of skin in these areas, or they have to keep using more and more extreme methods, even to using things like glass. And I don't mean a glass bottle, I mean a piece of glass, and there's actual self-injury involved in it. So this is a very extreme form of masturbation, and it often, as you've said earlier, starts minor, minimal, but it becomes something that people are doing for hours a day. They're doing it at work. They're doing it in the shopping center. They're doing it up all night. They can't stay awake at work because they were literally up all night. And it escalates real often. What you what you hear about in the news sometimes is something called autoerotic asphyxiation. Um, and they're the, the, the phrasing of that makes it sound like it's something interesting. But when you really stop and, and, and hear what it is, it's they're, they're cutting off their air supply in order to increase the intensity, in order to keep that high going from the act of masturbating to the point that many of them die. Right. Um, they will hang themselves or they'll, they'll, they'll actually stop breathing or they'll stop their heartbeat because this has escalated to that point. Um, multiple affairs, I think that's probably the one that people think about most regularly, that that's how it gets caught. They've had an affair again, and, and, and we took them back, and they had an affair again, and this time I'm going to divorce them, I promise. Um, um, and again, this is 
Not that any affair is good, <laughs> not that any affair is okay, but the idea that when we say multiple, we're talking many people involved, not one, not two, but in the hundreds of people involved in, in a relationship. So, again, a very extreme behavior. Um, compulsive dating, compulsive use of pornography, risky or unsafe sexual behaviors, cybersex, mm-hmm. exhibitionism, voyeurism, voyeurism um, um, use of prostitution or actually prostituting self. So there again, these different behaviors that in and of themselves continue to escalate and, and become um, more compulsive and more ritualized. The idea around prostitution, yes, we often see that people are forced into prostitution for a variety of reasons, sometimes to pay for a drug habit, sometimes to pay for a living, sometimes because they're forced to uh, because of human trafficking. But in this case, we're talking about someone who is choosing it because this is a risky kind of behavior and it may not be to pay their bills it may not have anything to do with that but it's a way uh, to have a secret it's a way to have um, a more and more extreme sexual experience adding on the element of danger yes so linking linking the financial exchange with the anonymous exchange and, and making it just a little bit riskier So one of the things that we see involved in all addictions is this idea of secrets, of having gotten away with something, having told somebody something that was not true, lying about their behavior, hiding their behavior. And yes, that is part of what they have to do to be able to continue to be engaged in their addictive behavior. But it's more than that. It's more than I have to do this so my mom won't find out I'm using drugs. There is something about having this secret. Often patients will tell me well before they're involved in other addictive behaviors or drugs that getting away with stealing some gum at the store or stealing the milk money at school and getting away with it. This is, uh, and having this secret is a very big rush that they get. And many of these behaviors, part of it can also be, I have a secret and I got away with it. Yeah, that's that's actually pretty interesting because when we talk about the recovery process, the, the very first step for recovery for, for any of them is honesty and being able to just get rigorously honest about this is what was going on. And and what we'll often find in dealing with, with chemical dependency is that there will be people who will really minimize the amount, but there's also people who will really over-exaggerate the amount. And in, in both cases, neither of them are really being clear or honest about about what's going on. And we'll see the exact same thing in sexual addiction, that there there are sex addicts who, who will minimize it, and they'll be like, oh, I just maybe masturbate once or twice in the shower, blah, blah, blah. And there's other people who will way, way over-exaggerate right. what's been going on because for them, telling the story or, or having that kind of exhibitionistic experience keeps keeps it going even in this um, therapeutic situation. And that is one of the 
one of the sexual addictions, and that's this exhibitionistic, voyeuristic kind of behavior. So sometimes it's by shocking other people, by having comments or having pornography out on their computer or interacting in a way that is very shocking is part of the thrill for this person. And um, that's another way in which this um, behavior may manifest itself. The, there becomes this real magical thinking for a lot of them that that I can put this right out there and nobody's going to notice and nobody's going to say anything. And in part, that's because um, they, they tend to come from a family system that was secretive and shaming and, and would not have talked about if there was pornography left out. They would have just moved the magazines over it and covered it and not brought that up. Mm-hmm. And the, the addict brain says, wow, I can do this and nobody even notices. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of very interesting, unfortunate behavior that can happen that um, uh, that we see over and over again. Often people with sexual addiction, they may not be the person who has a real heightened sex drive. I think this is the other thing that's that's very interesting. Often the sex itself is not really that pleasurable or even the ultimate goal. It's the hunt, it's the chase, it's the secret, it's the planning, it's all of these other things, and they may really um, not even be able to function sexually. In, well, in and certainly as it's, as the disease has progressed along right. with the aging process that those things go mm-hmm. hand in hand. Um, one of the next things that we'll tend to see is inappropriate um, sexual behaviors in related to time or place. Um, and real often how this manifests is that that person who's always flirting at work and and, and people are, are kind of warned when you start working at a particular place that that person's kind of handsy or that person's kind of um, um, always flirting with people. And so the society kind of works around it as well. Um, but but the person is is beginning to do things that they really should not be doing in business hours or they should not be doing in, in certain locations, but their brain is, is okay, making it okay. And often many of their interactions are sexualized the the way they talk the way they phrase the innuendos in which um, they speak can create this sexual tension in the air just in normal I'm just here trying to buy my groceries you know I'm just uh, uh, trying to have a conversation about the project we've got to get done and it becomes this very inappropriate kind of behavior that is often, as you said, people are uncomfortable with it, but they don't quite know what to do about it, creates a lot of difficulty and stress. Um, using sex to cope with emotion, negative problems, emotions, and, and bad feelings. Um, and, and so that part of part of the addiction is that's becoming their self-medication, and we'll talk about um, alcoholism or drug use as part of coping with feelings. Mm-hmm. And, and the sex addict will do the same thing. When they're in an overly tense situation, they will suddenly feel like they have to leave and go act out in whatever their sexual behavior is, um, which makes the recovery process awfully complicated because part of the recovery is being able to get real with your feelings and, and learn to tolerate feelings and in that process their brain is saying I gotta go 
Gotta go. Gotta go. Gotta go do something else. And that, again, makes it um, the secrets. And it's uh, with someone who is um, using drugs or alcohol, we can drug test them. We can get hair tests, we can get nail tests, we can get saliva tests, we can get blood tests. Um, and there's many ways in which we can validate or verify that that person is in recovery, that they have not been using drugs or alcohol. But with all behavioral addictions and sexual addiction as well, it is very hard to monitor whether someone is in compliance with their treatment plan. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how um, sexual addiction is treated and some of the ways in which um, people can recover. So please stay tuned. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. I have David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center, and we're talking about sexual addiction. We've talked a little bit about how it might manifest itself and some of the ways in which um, we feel that this is part of the addiction 
the addictive process that this is a brain disease and it can manifest itself not just with the use of chemicals but also uh, a number of different behaviors can also release dopamine and create the same kind of continued use in spite of consequences. So one of the questions that people have is what causes a sexual addiction and I think that the first thing generally we see is there is a genetic um, predisposition uh, for people. Now, that's not to say that people can't get in trouble sexually. They can, just like you can get drunk and get a DUI. Um, but people who have this kind of extreme compulsive behavior often have a genetic component. And we see that real often when you sit down with a patient and you do what we call a genogram, mm-hmm. which is looking back over the last several generations of the different um, problems that, that manifested in, in the various families. And you will see um, within within a family dealing with sexual addiction, you will see a grandfather that had multiple affairs, and you'll see that these things were manifesting even if they weren't labeling it at that point in time. Um, Also, we often see that um, the environment that that person grew up in, they may have had inconsistent parenting or they may have uh, parental abuse or neglect, and that is um, a, a very difficult priming situation which makes this person very vulnerable to stressful situations later on in their in their future life. If you're nurtured and you're allowed to explore life but come back and be comforted when you're in pain and yet not held so tightly you can't go, we've talked about this before, if you've got good, good enough parenting, uh, we often see people more able to tolerate stress. But often, if, again, if you look at the history of these folks and their families, there's often uh, a, a series of this is how the parent was parented and this is how the patient has been parented. Well, and so often when we're talking about sexual addiction in particular, much of the modeling that was going on um, was shame-based. Right. There, there was... There was um, behaviors that were confusing to a child or or a little bit off for a child and it wasn't okay for the child to talk about um, or situations where where what may have been normal childhood behavior was was um, turned into a shameful situation due to the parents own discomfort or the parents own rigidity around um, sexual behaviors so real often what we see in this is that there are some really significant um, early life trauma, shaming shaming trauma situations. Around sexual exploration or sexual questioning or behavior. I think the other thing that I consistently see is early exposure to sexually explicit material, whether that's through magazines, online pornography, actual observing um, people having sexual relations. Um, This is often one of the things before the child is really able to process and understand and um, develop a perspective on what they just viewed. This is a very titillating kind of thing that happens to them. Their dopamine rush happens and they're really being primed for sex to be a very important mm-hmm. part of their repertoire of behavior. One, one of the, the things that we really look at is um, covert and overt um, 
sexualizing um, overt um, incestu- incestuous situations that that a, a child is um, is noticing things that, that and things are being sexualized that are just not um, not able to be processed in the child's mind. Mm-hmm. And that that is a really big problem. So when we're thinking about how do we treat this, we certainly have to understand the individual's history, um, their family history, their parenting style. We have to understand their early views about sex, their early exposure to um, ideas about sex, and their early sexual experiences. This is part of the process, which is often very difficult for people, and they have a hard time sometimes, but just in doing that begins to help reduce the shame and guilt that they feel and they begin to um, ask questions and learn a little bit about what is normal behavior and what about what they've been doing may not be considered normal. Um, And and so as with any addiction, we tend to start out with abstinence, and and this is this is a situation that, I mean, for some people, when they're coming in for treatment for this, they're already in a in a forced abstinence situation. Um, but for a lot of people, it's the one thing that's been a consistent since they were first early pubescent. So it becomes a real threatening conversation just to talk about absolutely total abstinence. Um, but it's crucial because what we're talking about is brain healing mm-hmm. and 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 allowing the the brain the time it needs with chemical dependency we have no issue in saying you have to be abstinent we, you need to stop all of all of it so that your brain can heal but when we're moving to some of the behavioral things defining that becomes difficult right but certainly starting with a period of abstinence from abstinence from all sexual behavior um, is really important and um, to begin to also have as part of the history gathering now comes the education about what is healthy sexuality what is a healthy intimate sexual relationship and what is not and that's a real important thing because often um, our patients unfortunately have really no idea well, and, no and, and, and Dr. Karn, Patrick Carnes' early work, a big mm-hmm. part of what he talked about is that you really have got to create a safe space for that to happen um, because the, these individuals have so sexualized every aspect of life that telling their history um, can be an unsafe situation. And, and so establishing a safe boundary that they know this is going to be a place where I come in and I deal with this work and I know it's going to be confidential and I know that there's going to be no inappropriate touch in the midst of this and there's going to be no inappropriate gossip in the midst of this. Um, so having that place of safety. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I think letting them kind of have a safe place to talk about what is healthy sexual behaviors um, because for so many their role modeling has been pornography right. which is not necessarily the healthiest way to learn it unfortunately I think the other very um, important part particularly if the person is involved in an intimate relationship they have a spouse or a significant other this person has been pretty traumatized usually by the whole exposure, the explosion of whatever happened that got the person into treatment. And they um, have the um, all of the questions around the lies and the trust and the, 
and the difficulty for themselves understanding and comprehending what has happened to their relationship. So having a support for the spouse is very important. Um, Often couples' work has to be about setting boundaries and learning how to newly define the relationship. This is a this is a start over point and you can't take back what has happened but you can change the future and you can allow a relationship to grow and nurture be nurtured normally. This is often a very difficult thing for the spouse to do, but it is very possible for them to rebuild the relationship. So just actually letting them know that it is a possible thing, that that couples, many, many couples have come back Mm -hmm. from this and have had developed really strong relationships. Um, And and then I think that for all addiction, but but sexual addiction in particular, is is learning um, healthy ways to manage stress. Yes. Learning that that stress is normal, but but it has to be managed. Um, When we're talking about alcohol, we talk about people drink to escape. And they drink to reward, and they drink to feel good. And those same situations happen, happen, and the same compulsions are there for sexual behaviors. And people have to learn new healthy ways to escape and new healthy ways to relax and new healthy ways to feel good. And I think that it's really important that people know that this is, um, while a devastating illness, it is also a, an illness that can be treated. There are a number of uh, self-help programs that, um, such as Sex Anonymous, Sex and Love Anonymous, Sexaholics Anonymous, and uh, Support for Spouses. And you can find these on the Internet. This is treatable, and people do heal and do recover. And we will see you next week on Detailing Addiction. Thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.